Luis Carlos de Noronha Cabral de Camara. Let's just call him Luis. He was a Portuguese man. He died in 2007. He was the illegitimate son of Portuguese aristocracy. He was unknown by his biological father, unwanted by his mother, and adopted by a nanny who worked for his mother's wealthy husband. And yet it was his grandmother who set him up for life with a large real estate portfolio, hoping that that would stave off future problems with inheritance. Confused yet? Lewis spent his 24 adult years selling off his assets to fund his true passions, guns, bikes, beer. And upon his death, he still held a sizable fortune. Yet at no point did he reunite with his family or start a family of his own, and he had no real friends to speak of. Now, everyone had assumed Lewis was just too drunk or too apathetic to uh, get a will sorted, and so, as per Portuguese law, his assets would all transfer back to his parents. But who are his parents? Is it the father he'd never met? What about the mother who refused to have anything to do with him? The nanny who raised him? The grandmother who attempted to buy his silence with property? The aristocrat that funded his childhood? The pub owner. That's where Lewis basically lived. Imagine their shock when they found out that Lewis actually did sort out a will. He divided his inheritance between 70 strangers picked out of a phone book by some lawyer down the street. It is a bizarre response. But if you had no idea who your father was, if you never connected in with your family, is it really that crazy? Yet as Christians, we know who our father is. And he has given us a family that we can connect into. And tonight, we will see just how life-changing all that truth is. Welcome to the new January series, It Changed My Life. And this is where some of the members of Christchurch are going to walk us through some passages that have been life-changing for us. We'll see the riches of, the, of God's word. And tonight, we're going to see how God has adopted us as children not as slaves, and that impacts my relationships, but it should impact all of our relationships. To help us see that, we have three points. We have the purpose of the law, we'll see the promise of adoption, and we'll see the privilege of adoption. So keep your Bibles open to Galatians from chapter 3, and we're going to kick it off tonight in verse 23. Because that's where we see that before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Which faith is that? Well, the key rule for understanding the Bible is context, context, and context. So please skip back to verse 22, and you'll see that the faith that is being talked about is faith in Jesus that gives what God has promised to those who believe, to those who have that faith. But until that faith came... We are held in custody under the law. Now, we often think about people being arrested and put in prison, and that's kind of the, the custody idea. But this is being placed under the custody of a guardian, as in the guardian of someone who is not yet an adult. Now, Paul, he's the author of this letter to the Galatians, and he explains the guardian idea a bit more in chapter 4. We will get there soon, but it's important that first we see the purpose of the law. 
You see, faith and keeping the law are not two separate paths to God. You don't try and keep the law, and when you stuff that up and that backfires, you go, plan B, faith. That doesn't make the law useless, though. You see, we don't have a full understanding of what sin is. So the law of God, which was initially given to Moses and summed up in the Ten Commandments, helps us because it defines sin. It makes us aware of what sin is, how it offends and it wrongs God. And it becomes clear through that that we've all done it. We've all sinned. Now, the law also shows that sin is a crime against God personally. And that actually makes it impossible to be in right relationship with God. He is holy. He cannot stand sin. But also, sin is actually our desire to twist the relationship with God. We want to be God. We want to be on top. We want to change the relationship. And God, well, he takes that personally. Because when we act like we want his spot, that's offensive to him. We also see that the law shows us the punishment for this desired change relationship. And that punishment is death. Now, ultimately, death enters the world because sin enters the world. Ezekiel 18 says that the one who sins will die. And finally, the law shows us that nobody is saved by keeping the law. You see, it was never the purpose of the law to save people who kept 100% of the commands. The Bible shows us many examples of people who had the prime position to keep the law. There was Adam. He walked in the Garden of Eden with God. There was Solomon. He asked for perfect wisdom and he got it. There were the disciples who followed Jesus around for years. And then you had all the generations of God's people in between who all had God's blessings and all sinned. No one kept the law until Jesus himself came to earth. So ultimately, we see the whole purpose of the law is to point people to Jesus. And so it's no wonder that from verses 22 to 24, Paul says that the law is like the guardian that takes care until the time has come for salvation. We don't realize we need a savior until we realize we've sinned. And now verse 24 tells us that Jesus Christ is that savior and he will justify us by faith. But until he came, the law acted like a guardian. Now flick forward to chapter number four in verse one and we'll see the principle established by this idea. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Now when Galatians was written, there was a set time when you were no longer under age. You were an adult in your own right, but it was different depending on which culture. See, for Jews, you had the bar mitzvah celebration. And in Greek culture, it was when you turned 18. And under Roman law, it would be between 14 and 17, but the father of the child would set that time. And what Paul is saying is it's like Roman law. 
There is a time set by the Father. You were once a child, you will pass into maturity. Just like Roman law, the time, though, is set by the Father. Because there is always a time where we will pass from being under law to being justified by faith in Christ. The concept of God's people Israel being like non-aging children who stayed as children forever, that was never going to be a possibility. The concept of Jesus not coming to die for sins on the cross was never going to be a possibility. So now, we are no longer under the law because we live after the cross. We are no longer under a guardian. We live by faith. So what does that faith bring? Back in chapter 3, verse 26, we see the promise of adoption into God's family. Read with me. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We are united with Christ through being adopted into his family. Now, the language of being clothed with Christ says a lot about identity. If you identify as a goth, you will dress like a goth. If people see you dressed as a goth, then they'll be able to figure out something about who you are. And so it is for us as Christians. Now, we don't have a uniform, but the idea of being clothed with Christ means that our identity is in Christ. That is who we are. Our adoption has actually changed who we physically are. People should be able to see that. And there's a lot of ways that we can make that visible. But one of the clearest ways is not just with our unity with Christ, but our unity with each other. Passage continues, verse 28, where the Bible reads, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not only are we united with Christ, we are united with each other. Because our adoption as believers makes us one family logically. Now, that's regardless of gender or status or race. But it was quite surprising to me when I first heard this. Because I spent six years at a high school where people split themselves by where they were born or where they lived. So one social group hung out together because they lived in the inner west together. The Koreans all hung out together. The kids from the subcontinent who weren't Muslim all hung out together. But they shunned the kid who wasn't Muslim and he hung out with the other Muslims. The Chinese kids who studied in the library hung out together. The non-Chinese kids who did exactly the same studying in the library all hung out together. And no one ever mixed. I got to the end of year 12, I met people for the first time. And so the idea of unity felt like a pipe dream to me. Five days a week, I saw the opposite. Now, if we applied the logic of the class of 2002 here at Christchurch, that would put everyone who lives on the other side of Gladesville Bridge in one group, and then the rest of us will sort by age and skin colour, and we'll just move you to corners of the church, and no one is allowed to come in the middle. What a horrific concept that would be. The church is God's family. Jesus died to bring us together, not just to him, but as a church. 
And so not only is there a unity between the saviour and the saved, but there's a unity that binds together those who are saved. Therefore, that must impact our love and our commitment to this church community. As a teenager who became a Christian, I watched as my Bible study leaders and my youth leaders showed me what it looked like to love the church. They didn't just hang out with some friends that shared skin colour and age or some hobbies that they had together. No, they worked hard as they worked the room, speaking to people who didn't fit in at church or who were new or maybe found church a bit difficult. I saw that and I wanted to mimic that. But it was not the usual default for me to do that. Now, if you're new tonight, a lot of things are actually quite unusual about Christchurch. Maybe you find singing weird or praying weird. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the Bible read. But I hope that your experience picks on one really unusual thing, and that is how this church is united to each other. For those who are regular here, for those who consider church their family, what a great encouragement Galatians is. We should keep, keep serving each other, continue encouraging each other, as I see here week by week. Because we are saved into a real family through faith in Christ Jesus. Now we see more of what this means in verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise is that? Well, to see it most clearly, we actually need to track it from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created the world, and he created man and woman, Adam and Eve. He gave them dominion over creation. In effect, they were heirs of all that God had made, while they lived under God's ultimate authority. But by Genesis 3, whole thing's ruined. Humans are sinful. They reject both God's authority over them and God's design for how they should live. Satan deceives Eve, and Adam and Eve both choose to sin over choosing to serve God. As a result, all of us individually have chosen to actively rebel against God. We face alienation and separation from God. We are no longer heirs of what he has made. When you sin, when you choose to reject God, Effectively, you choose Satan as your father, and you become enslaved to your sin. But it doesn't take long, because in the same chapter, Genesis 3, verse 15, God promises that Satan will be defeated by a descendant of Eve. Now, the promise is that this separation from God, that will end with someone descended from Eve. The promise is a return to a right relationship with God that was there in the beginning. And so the Old Testament tracks that promise. You have Eve and her descendant is Abraham. Starting in Genesis 12, we see more promises made of what that's going to look like, and it keeps getting fleshed out through the family line. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, eventually to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who lives under God's ultimate authority even when facing death. It is Jesus who follows God's design on how we should live, even when facing temptation. 
And it is Jesus who lives today, raised from the dead by God's power. And he proves that this promise to bring people back to God into his family is a promise that has been kept. God promises to bring his sons and daughters back into the family by breaking their slavery to sin. Have a look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That is the promise of adoption kept. Jesus, who defeats Satan and defeats sin on the cross, who defeats death in the resurrection, proves himself worthy of our worship and adoration as he adopts us into his family. Verse 26 reminds us that in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. And so it is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that I am a son of God. I'm part of his family. But it's no surprise that chapter 3 is all about Christ and not really about me. Christ appears six times in seven verses at the end. But Jesus is not just the focal point of this passage. He is the focal point of the Bible and of all human history. Which is good that I'm not the focal point of any of these things. To explain, Bernardos is a charity that works with the Find a Family program. Now listen to this spiel of one of the children that they're attempting to find adoptive parents for. Sarah, five years old. She enjoys lots of creative activities and adventurous outings. You will get to enjoy Sarah's wonderful sense of humour and her kind and caring nature. She absolutely loves animals. Sarah needs parents who are patient and resourceful with a strong support network. She will thrive with lots of one-on-one -on -one attention, consistent routine, and boundaries. Now imagine if one of us were to try and attempt to convince God to adopt us based on our own merits or our own personality. To paraphrase Romans 3, it might look something like this. Lee is not righteous, doesn't understand, and doesn't seek new parents. He has become worthless and does no good ever. He speaks poisonous lies, curses and bitterness. He is violent and leaves behind him a trail of ruin and misery because he can't understand peace. That's who I was. But the reality is that the adopted child of God is not that anymore. 1 John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Is that who you are? Has your life been changed by the word of God? Is God your father? Have you been set free from slavery to sin? Because if you have, look at the privileges of this adoption that God has given to those who are the heirs. Verse 6, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now what a privilege it is to have God's spirit. 
Because that's how we know that we're his children. Romans 8 tells us this in verses 15 and 16. That the spirit we received brought about our adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, Abba might be the most overrated musical act of the last 50 years, but calling God Abba is probably the most underrated phrase in the whole New Testament. This is an Aramaic word for father, and it's one that Jesus used. And so you know it symbolizes a close relationship, because there is none closer than Jesus, who is God, and his father. Now, as a child, I put my trust in my earthly father. He did the maintenance, he kept the house nice, he earned the money, he provided the food, he drove me to the cricket games. I was utterly dependent on him. Now, seven-year-old Lee has no idea how to repair a broken chair or get a job or cook. I still haven't learned how to drive. And we should have the same level of childlike dependence that I had on my father with God. We aren't going to save ourselves. We can't keep the law. We can't nominate ourselves into adoption and force God to do it. Now, the term Abba should draw us towards the idea of the relationship that Jesus has with his father. It's close and it's personal. It has all the formal respect of addressing him as father, but also all the relational intimacy, intimacy of a child calling out for their daddy. Our prayers should be marked by the fact that God is our Father. He is relational. He is intimate. And yet he is f- we need to be fully aware that the God we pray to is above all things, is a perfect and holy and righteous God to be feared. We are dependent on this God. We are also dependent on him giving us his spirit. Because to consider God our Father, is not something that happens without the Spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit that prompts us and calls us to relate rightly to God and to call him Father with confidence and thankfulness and love. And so I hope you've been encouraged to keep in step with what God's Spirit is doing. We know that our Father is true to his promises and he is always faithful to his children. And we see another privilege of our adoption in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, heirs inherit. What do we inherit? In short, heaven, which is the totality of everything that God has promised to us. That is going to be the complete restoration into an eternal family under God. That is going to be the return to how God had always intended it to be in the beginning. No death, no sin. But the greatest part of our inheritance is actually God himself. Being his child, being able to call him Father, Abba, for eternity. And we know the world is broken. And possibly we see that more clearly in the failure of our earthly families to be as good as God. They don't match the promises that God makes to his children. 
no matter how good your parents are. But our inheritance in Christ is guaranteed. It's imperishable. It's unspoiled and it is eternal. So adoption as God's children hasn't just changed my life, it's changed my eternal life. And no wonder in Psalm 8, the psalmist cries out in worship and praise, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's recap where we've been so far tonight. Because we've seen that the purpose of the law is to bring us to Jesus. Nobody was ever saved by being perfect and keeping the law. We've seen the promise of adoption fixes the problem of our slavery to sin. And it makes us children of God. And we've seen that the privilege of adoption is an eternal inheritance. It's guaranteed by the same Holy Spirit that enables us to call God our Father. We started tonight talking about Louise. He divided his will among randoms because he never felt like he had a family. Now, all the issues that Louise had, they're kind of comical in a way, but they're also strange to us as Christians because they are issues that we should never have. Our lives should look like the complete opposite. We're not steadily eroding our inheritance to pay for our way of life. Actually, our imperishable inheritance is transforming the way we live right now. Our Father's not unknown or absent. He's revealed himself in his word and made himself known in flesh by coming to earth to save us. And so I know that I am loved. And I know that my future is secure because I can call God my Father. I'm one of his family. And so every time the Bible asks me to do something, I remind myself of that, and I always have a reason to obey. So let's be a church that reminds itself of the reason why we follow our God. Let's be united to each other and united to our God. We know who our Father is. We know what he has done for us. And so we know with confidence where we are going. Let's pray. Dear God, you are an awesome and powerful God. You are worthy of worship because of who you are and what you have done. But we so often reject you, even though we know that sin enslaves us. Thank you that you saved us when we could not save ourselves. Thank you that we are your children and help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling we have received, growing more and more each day to reflect your Son in how we live. Amen.